Well, as we continue our worship, I'm going to be reading the scripture today. It comes from the book of Revelation, beginning in verse 9. We're going to begin a short series looking at different aspects of the book of Revelation, and we're starting today in chapter 1. It says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you've seen those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is God's word. Will you please pray with me? Father, we come to you this afternoon asking that you would open our eyes, ears, and hearts to receive this word. Thank you for being a God that reveals yourself. Thank you for being a God who loves us enough to speak to us. And please, Lord, by the power of your spirit, help us to understand, and not only to understand, but to believe and to obey what we hear today. We ask, Lord, that that you would work through me. I pray, God, that, that your spirit would speak through me, that it would be you speaking today, and that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart would be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me ask you something. When you talk to your friends, your neighbors, people that you know about your faith in Christ, what kinds of things do you share with them? Or if you're, you're tuning in and, and you're not sure where you stand with God or you're, you're exploring faith, and you hear other people who have faith talk to you about that, what kinds of things do they say? 
I'll bet they don't say what John says about the faith in verse 9. He says that he is their brother and partner of these churches he's writing to in the tribulation and then the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. I'll bet you don't hear very often, you don't speak very often, about the tribulation and the endurance of suffering that Christians, by nature, are supposed to be going through. But, but John opens his, his whole letter, this vision of, of Christ, this way. Why does he speak about patient endurance and tribulation and, and sandwich what seems like a glorious thing, the kingdom, between those things? It's because the book of Revelation is a message from the throne of heaven to the church in trouble. That's what the whole book is about. It's a message from the church, from the, from the throne of heaven to the church in trouble. And, and John kind of bears this out and explains more as he goes. He, he says in, in verse 9 that, that he was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God, and the testimony of Jesus. See, see, John isn't an objective, outside, disinterested party. John is suffering. He, he's on this island called Patmos in exile. He had spoken the gospel throughout the world at that time. He was one of Jesus' apostles sent by him. And, and as he went sharing the gospel, he eventually ran afoul of the authorities and he was exiled, thrown in jail, Tradition has it that he was tr they tried to kill him, they couldn't, so they exiled him. And now he's writing this account. And he's writing this account in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. He's exiled, apart from his friends, apart from his family, apart from his church. Sound familiar? And, and as he does that, he was in the Spirit. He was communing with God. He was praying on the Lord's day, on Sunday, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Despite the fact that he's separated from the church, he still has access to God. He still communes with God. It's an encouraging thing to recognize. And as he goes, in the midst of the, the, the suffering, the, the persecution, the, 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 the trouble that John and, and others were going through, Jesus gives a vision to John. Gives a vision to John. And in verse 11, we, we hear Jesus speak, telling him that he should write what he sees in a book and send it to the seven churches. Jesus is giving this vision from his throne in heaven to John, and, and John is supposed to give it to these churches, these seven churches, he names them here, were likely churches that John had some authority, some influence in, probably planted some of them, maybe, maybe all of them. These are particular churches in particular cities, but their number seven is significant. It's not just for these particular churches, but for the, all the church, the fullness of the church, the, the, the complete church throughout the world. This message from the throne of heaven isn't just for these particular churches, it's for us as well. It's for us when we're in trouble, when we're suffering. The coronavirus epidemic has brought much suffering across the world. And maybe you're in a place, maybe some of us are in a place of, of fear. 
Maybe you look at, at the, the way that, that coronavirus is destroying our economy and you are fearful for your economic stability and future. Maybe you have friends or family who've been affected by the virus itself. Maybe you're afraid of the illness for yourself, for your family and loved ones. Maybe you're worried about your own mental and emotional health as you're distanced from all the people in your life and, and, and maybe you're, you're stuck at home alone or with very little contact with the outside world. Maybe you're worried about your marriage as lots of close contact with your spouse is bringing things to the surface that have been under the surface for a long time but are now being brought to the fore as you spend so much time together. Maybe you're worried for your kids. Maybe you experience shelter in place as just a relative inconvenience. Wherever you are today, I, I, I want to recognize that, that all of us have eyes on this world right now. That, that we're all watching the news and reading the newspapers and, and, and trying to make sense of what's happening around us and, and want to know when we're going to get to go back to life as usual. But the reality is that in heaven, far greater things are taking place than the coronavirus. Far more important things are taking place. And we thought that it would be good for us as a church to go through the parts of the book of Revelation to, to give us this vision of, of what is really happening behind the scenes in heaven. Revelation means a revealing. And, and, and John, for us, is, is taking the curtain up on heaven. And, and behind the curtain, behind everything, there's Christ seated on a throne, reigning and ruling over all things, sending this message to the church. Now, the book of Revelation is a, is a challenging one for, for many people to interpret, and, and it causes a lot of confusion for many of us. One thing that, that a lot of people don't know is that Revelation is, is the book in the New Testament with the most quotes and allusions to the Old Testament. There's more Old Testament in Revelation than in any other book in the New Testament. And, and we, we start to see the, the Old Testament coming to the surface in this vision, starting in verse 12. I'm sorry, starting in verse 10. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord day, Lord's Day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, if you've ever heard a trumpet behind you, which you weren't expecting, it'd probably be scary and really loud. But, but it's not just the loudness that John is trying to convey here. John's actually making an allusion to when God's people Israel were gathered in the wilderness at Mount Sinai. And he's pointing the way back. And, and as John's people in, in these churches would have heard like a trumpet, a voice like a trumpet, they would have thought of Exodus chapters 19 and 20 when God gave the Ten Commandments to his people. When God, the cloud, and the fire descended on the mountain and spoke with his voice over his people. And this is what God said. This is what happened in that passage after God had spoken his Ten Commandments over the people. He says in verse 19, the people said to Moses, you speak to us. I'm sorry, I'm going to read verse 18 first. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet, there it is, and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, 
But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. John isn't just hearing a loud voice behind him. John is hearing a voice behind him that is so scary, he's afraid he might die. That's what the people reading this would have heard 2,000 years ago. That's what you and I should understand today. That what John is experiencing is, is awesome in power, is, is God in his glorious might, and God in his majestic otherness. John is pointing to the fact that God is a holy and awesome God. And in God's holiness, he wants us to get a sense of the wonder of God speaking to us. And he continues on. Then in verse 12, John has, has gathered himself. He's heard a, a voice that's so scary, he's afraid he might die. He takes a deep breath, gets up his courage, and turns around. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And you're like, why seven golden lampstands? It's the lampstands aren't speaking. Why are the lampstands the first thing that John sees? Again, the, the early church would have heard those words and gone back to the Old Testament. And they would have known that, that when God gave instructions to Moses to build the tabernacle and later the temple, that the seven golden lampstands, essentially menorahs like you would see in a Jewish synagogue today, these seven tall lampstands holding candles would have been in the holy place in the temple. The holy place was right next to the holy of holies. The holy of holies being that, that, that place in the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was. On top of the ark was the mercy seat. It was supposed to be the throne of God on earth, overshadowed by statues of the cherubim. The golden lampstands lit up the holiest place in all of Israel, a place where only priests could go into. Other non-consecrated people couldn't enter into that place. And the first thing John sees are these lampstands. And in verse 20, he tells us that the lampstands, Jesus tells him the lampstands are the seven churches he wants John to write to. In his book, The Pilgrim's Regress, C.S. Lewis tells the story of a man named John, who's the pilgrim, and it's a story of how he grew up close to God but then fell away and somehow, over the course of his life's journey, stumbled back into faith in Christ. And at the end of the book, this, this pilgrim, John, has to travel back through, the, through the, the, the world that he's lived through, through this kind of mythical land he's painting. And, and everything, as he goes back through his life, suddenly looks different. The scales have fallen from his eyes, and he begins to see things as they truly are. The successful titans of, of business and industry now look to him like nothing but dragons hoarding their gold and those temptations to lust and sin look now like nothing but swamps filled with quicksand, dangerous to enter. The latest fashions and trends and, and, and ways of, of thinking in the modern world look like specks of dust that have hardly any substance to them at all. 
And the few faithful Christians following Christ, the ragtag bunch that, that looked like very little in, in his former life, now look like an army of conquerors. The same thing is what God is doing for us in the book of Revelation. When, when, when God shows John these lampstands, he's, he's posing a question for him. He's, he's helping to reveal something to him. He's, he's showing him what's really going on. John is their partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. The church in this world looks like a suffering group of people. Nothing all that exciting, nothing to commend it. But the kingdom is sandwiched between those words. Jesus Christ, in his earthly ministry, when he went to the cross, he didn't look anything like a king. But it was on the cross, as they strung him up there, that he became the conqueror of sin for all people. When they laid Christ's body in the tomb, he didn't look much like a conquering hero, but the tomb on the third day was the site of his greatest victory over death and hell for all of us. You and I might look at the church and think that it doesn't look like much, especially now, especially through live streaming. The church is often underfunded. The, the church is often divided. The church is filled with imperfect people like us. But when Jesus looks at us, what he sees are the seven golden lampstands standing in his presence, standing in heaven, in his throne room, standing tall above all other things, made of the finest gold, shining the light of the gospel for all people to see. But the incredible thing about this passage is that it's not the lampstands that take John's breath away. No. It's what John hears from Christ, or what he sees in Christ in verses 13 through 16. I'm going to read those again. He says that in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white, like white, white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. What takes John's breath away isn't the vision of the lampstands. What takes John's breath away is the reality of who lives among the lampstands. It's Christ Jesus himself standing in the midst of the church. He's not far off. He's not separated from the church on a throne in a distant place. No, he walks among us. He walks with us. Nothing can separate us from him. That's why Paul says what he does in Romans chapter 8. Verses 38 and 39, he says there that I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, 
nor coronavirus, nor a, a downturning economy, not your, your marriage being on the rocks, not anything else. Not war or famine, pestilence or plague, nothing else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see what good news this is? It means that Colossians chapter 3, verse 3 is true, that our life is hidden with Christ in God. It means that, that whatever we suffer on this earth, whatever we go through, whatever tribulation or trouble, Jesus has us in his hand. Our position in heaven is secure. Nothing can separate us from him. We are with him now. He is with us. That's why Paul again says what he does in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. Whatever we suffer on this earth, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. In, in this passage, in, in Revelation 1, John is making multiple allusions to multiple passages, but I want to just look briefly at one of them with you. The one that he refers to the most in this passage. It's the book of Daniel, chapter 7. And in that chapter, there, Daniel has a vision of two, two beings, two figures. There's the Son of Man, and there's the Ancient of Days. And the Son of Man approaches the throne of the Ancient of Days, God himself, and receives from him a kingdom over which he will reign forever. It's where Jesus got his favorite title for himself, the Son of Man. In, in Daniel 7, uh, we don't get a description of the Son of Man, but we do get a description of the Ancient of Days. Daniel 7 verse 9 says this, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head white like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. That sound familiar? It's almost like John in Revelation 1, Jesus giving this vision to John has Christ dressed up like the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7. Here's, here's John, the disciple, looking on his master, Jesus, with whom he walked on the earth for three years. And he sees not just a man, but he sees Jesus dressed up like God himself. This vision is meant to convey this incredible truth that Jesus is God, God in all of his splendor, God in all of his holiness. He's like God in his wisdom, which is what the, the white hair is meant to signify. He's like God in, in his moral purity, which is what the white robes con communicate. He's like God in his radiant glory, which is what his burning face and shining feet convey. He's like God in his power and authority. He speaks with the voice of many waters and a, and a sharp two-edged sword comes from his mouth. Jesus 
is the king. Jesus is God. And so John, in verse 17, has the only appropriate response for a, a, a creature stained by sin in the presence of God himself. Verse 17 says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John is confronted with the radiant glory, the majestic otherness of a holy God. And the only thing he can do is fall down in humility as though he is dead. It's what Isaiah did in the temple when he tore his robes and said, I am undone before this holy God. Do we realize how holy and awesome and deserving of fear our God is? Or are we casual? Are we nonchalant in his presence? Are we flippant about the way we worship him? If we're honest with ourselves, we know we do not deserve his his mercy, his grace, his presence in our lives. We know we don't deserve it. And yet, it's knowing that we don't deserve it that leads us to receive it. John falls down as though dead. And it goes on in verse 17, But Christ laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. All our little fears in this world pale in comparison to the fear we ought to have when it comes to the risen Christ. Nothing that we fear in this world is is anything close to the power and glory that Jesus possesses. And and part of what what we're seeing here is, is Christ communicating to us we have no reason to fear the things in this world that we fear. We don't have to be afraid of death. He is the risen one. He holds the keys to death and Hades. In fact, Jesus is basically saying, death is like my lapdog, and when I want to put him in a kennel and shut the, shut the door and lock it, I can do that whenever I choose. We don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear poverty. We don't have to fear for our reputation. We don't have to fear for our marriages, for our family, for our children. We don't have to fear for, for our, our careers. We don't have to fear that we can pay the rent. We don't have to fear because we live in the presence of the risen Christ. And when we realize that truth, that everywhere we go, if we are in his church, a part of his body, the church, then we are in his presence and he is with us. That should lead us to repentance and humility in all aspects of our lives. And when we realize how high he is and how low we really are, when we come to him in repentance, when we come to him in faith and in humility, what does he do? He comes to us. He reaches out a gracious hand and places it on our shoulder and whispers in our ears, Fear not. Let's pray.
Father, we praise you for the truth in your word, that we are not alone, even if we feel alone, that we will never be alone because you are with us by the power of your spirit through your son. Thank you, God, that you are with us. Thank you that you will never leave or forsake us. Help us to believe this truth and help us to come to you in humility and faith. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.